I'm Pam Bishop, and I have long COVID. Several times a month, I was going to Vanderbilt and seeing different specialists, and we were trying to figure out if there had been any visible damage done to my body from the COVID infection. None of the testing that anyone was doing on us was really coming back, showing that there was anything wrong with us. It affects my brain. It affects my memory. And I don't know which is COVID and which is lupus. (laughs) And the doctors don't know. And I've got like pre-dementia symptoms happening. And it's like night and day between, you know, what I used to do and what I do now. I actually got COVID back in March of last year. My husband got it first. Bone tired, maybe is a better word than fatigue. There were days he'd call me and he would be, you know, happy, laughing. And then there'd be other days he just said, well, my fever spiked again. My blood work doesn't look good. My blood sugar's uncontrollable. So I live in like a very small condo and there are days where I can't hardly walk from the couch to the refrigerator. Like that much energy being expended means I have to go take a nap. I have brain fog. I think there may be more people out there than we think that have long COVID and either they're just not aware or they're embarrassed because there is, I think, a little bit of a stigma. I don't do any things that I used to do. Like, I can't go run. I'm terrified of getting COVID again. Honestly, it is getting harder and harder. And I hate to be negative about it, but I'm just, I'm exhausted. I've decided that it's very important for us to come forward, even if there is that stigma now, because if we stay silent, then nothing will get better. I'm learning a lot. I'm getting a PhD in life right now. That's TJ Roseberry. We also heard from Suzanne Martin, Pam Bishop, and Alicia Swift. They sat down with our producer, Scott Acord, to talk about their experiences with long COVID, their frustrations, their fears, and the challenges of living with a disease process that's only being understood as they live through it. I'll let you know how you can listen to extended cuts of their conversations coming up on the Hear Me Now podcast. On today's program, understanding long COVID. This whole COVID thing has been the worst roller coaster ride of my life. As soon as the first COVID-19 patients began to recover from their acute infections, we began to hear about COVID survivors experiencing other symptoms. This is where I think we still need to learn the most. Uh, If there's persistence of virus in protected pockets in the body, or if there's an immune response that's ongoing, that might explain why some of these things sort of pop up sometime after the acute event. Today, we talk with researchers who've been studying how this novel viral infection is producing novel post-acute manifestations. Also, in Nashville, they're making a place where long COVID patients can find support. Many people with long COVID don't feel like they have a forum 
where they can be heard and understood. And this support group has been that way for them. This is the Hear Me Now podcast that comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. I'm glad you're listening. Remember when the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic was in its early days? You heard the causative agent referred to as a novel coronavirus. It was a subtle reminder to everyone that everything about this virus and the illness it produced was new. We hadn't seen this particular virus before. And while clinicians scrambled to care for the sickest patients, and public health and civic authorities struggled to keep the rest of the population safe from infection, and researchers made Herculean efforts to develop a vaccine to prevent infections and the most serious illness and to keep people out of strained ICUs. In those days, discharge from the hospital was met with a great sigh of relief. But almost immediately, survivors of COVID began to be sick in other ways, in novel ways, if you will. Again, the virus proved to be unknown in many ways. Long COVID became the description most commonly used to describe symptoms that appear after someone has recovered from the initial SARS-CoV-2 infection. Another term that gets used in scientific circles is PASC, P-A-S-C, meaning post-acute sequelae of COVID-19. In March of 2022, the journal Cell published a landmark study by more than 75 authors looking at the symptoms and conditions that appear after an initial infection with COVID-19. And they identified a number of early factors of clinical significance, offering a glimpse, just a glimpse of understanding of how this virus is able to cause disease in new ways after the first infection. Dr. Jason Goldman is a specialist in infectious disease at the Swedish Center for Comprehensive Care in Seattle. And Dr. Jim Heath is president of the Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle. Doctors Goldman and Heath are the principal investigators of the PASC study, and they join me now. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure Thanks to be so here. Thanks so much for having us, Sean. I think it's safe to say that there's still a lot of confusion about long COVID in terms of, of what it is and what it's not. The CDC has a pretty vague definition at work, uh, namely a range of new returning or ongoing health problems that people can experience four or more weeks following initial SARS-CoV-2 infection. Which leads me to ask, is the clinical presentation the definition of long COVID at this stage? You're, you're right. That's Jason Goldman. Right now, long COVID is basically a syndrome, which is a constellation of symptoms or findings. Um, we don't completely understand the biology behind it, although our study was you know, one of the first to do a deep dive to try to understand the biology. There's... The, the definition is defined by the symptoms, and the virus can affect all different organ systems in the body, probably by a few different mechanisms. So 
there are some kind of common features of long COVID, like the fatigue, fever, or trouble breathing, loss of sense of taste and smell. Some of these things show up very frequently, and you know I think we have an initial understanding of these. Um, but then there are you know many many more rare manifestations like development of diabetes or or other features that um, may or may not fit in with the syndrome itself, but right now are being all lumped together because we don't have a great handle on exactly what's causing long COVID. Jason is right. So the the CDC definition is a catch-all, and it, it it's so broad that, um, you know, I think many of the researchers in the field feel perhaps it's not that useful. You know, I think the study that Jason and I and, you know, several other folks were involved in began to parse through different types or etiologies, is a proper term, of COVID, you know, indicate, uh, suggesting that long COVID really is a catch-all term that covers probably half a dozen different conditions that have different associated causal factors and one shared common causal factor, which is the fact that you got COVID. For example, patients have things and neurological issues, brain fog, et cetera. Uh, some patients have respiratory issues. Um, hair loss is actually something that pops up. A lot of these conditions look like they're associated with autoimmune difficulties. Some of them aren't. Um, and so much of the science that we've parsed through so far has been to try to more sharply define these different disease conditions that are sort of grouped as long COVID. And each one of them, in principle, um, would have a different treatment. Um, it's, there's not an infinite number of treatments, I don't think, but, but there's a handful of treatments that are likely to be um, important going forward. Yeah. I, w- I want to ask you uh, about the, the study that you, you all worked on um, and what you found. Um, when I was looking at it, you described the study in part as a deep, multi-omic investigation. Help me understand what that means and why it's important here. So the way we designed that study was to capture patients at the initial time point that they're diagnosed and to follow them out until they had recovered um, two to three months later. And in, in some cases now, patients are going out for quite a bit longer. Um, we collected blood we, and things like this. And, and really, our initial study was designed to understand the nature of the acute condition, you know, when people are, are severely infected with COVID. Um, but we wanted to follow through to recovery. That was very smart of us in hindsight um, because we weren't thinking of long COVID at the time. And, um, and then we, you know, because we weren't thinking of long COVID at the time, we actually didn't even think really deeply about asking people how they felt when they had recovered. We had to go back and collect that data. Um, the multi-omic part is really, it, it sort of originates from the systems biology concepts that describe where I work, the Institute for Systems Biology, um, where we try to look at patients from multiple different viewpoints. 
whether it's the proteins that are in their blood, the, pro, the metabolites, their genome, um, their clinical record. Um, and, you know, really we took, I don't know, maybe 10 different views of these patients. The idea being that any single view is very incomplete, but having 10 views basically can reinforce your picture of, 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 of of how patients respond and journey through the disease of COVID to recovery and can be used to mine, you know, potentially for therapeutic interventions or things like this. It's a very computationally intense way to do science, but it's deeply informative. So um, I think this might be a new word for some people, multi-omic. The language here is this is akin to like the ohm of genome. It's the genome, the proteome, and the metabolome, the immunome. <laughs> it's it's all the different parameters. So, like like for example, if you sequence someone's genome, that means that you're pulling DNA out of the cells and you're looking at the genomic sequence of that patient. That's their DNA, commonly used in you know everything from court cases to to healthcare. When you look at their transcriptome, you're looking at which of those genes actually can be expressed. When you look at the protein, you see which of those genes are being expressed are actually going on to do to make the machines that are associated with living. So this is a um, an aggregate of genetic information. Is that the right word to use? That's a reasonable way to think about it. A sort of almost like a, a French pastry. You're looking at lots of levels in the in the biological reality that makes up our person, our our being. That's right. Like if you looked at a car, knowing all the individual parts that go into a car is not particularly useful in terms of understanding how the car functions. You actually need to know how they're assembled, how they work together. When you turn the ignition, which parts work, which parts are neglected, etc. And so basically taking the same approach with, with human health. You know, when we did this multi-omic approach and we're trying to understand long COVID, it actually initially wasn't very revealing. <laughs> and that was because we were missing certain of these past factors, these, these uh, factors that actually can anticipate whether a patient will develop long COVID perhaps what type of, what flavor of long COVID they'll develop and which ones won't. And as we began thinking about what those could be, we, we did a, a, another set of measurements looking at things like autoantibodies. I think most people by now in this pandemic are familiar with antibodies because that's how you develop protection against the virus. But autoantibodies are antibodies that you make that are actually directed against your own proteins, not, not necessarily a healthy thing for patients to make, but oftentimes it doesn't, it's not that important. You can make low levels of autoantibodies, not a big deal. Um, we looked for trace signatures of not just the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the blood, but other viruses. And we looked for factors in the electronic health records, like comorbidities that might be um, anticipatory of long COVID. Once we integrated those measurements together with this multi-omic picture, that was like putting on a pair of glasses. Tell me some of the insights that you gained once all that got put together. 
One thing we found is that type 2 diabetes was pre-existing condition that could anticipate the development of long COVID. I think one of the reasons why we found that, there's a pretty easy finding, was because that's such a very common condition that in the 300 or so patients that we had in our study, we had a statistical number of them that had type 2 diabetes, and so we could understand if that's important or not. We looked for the levels of several viruses, and we found two in the blood. One was SARS-CoV-2 itself in the blood. Typically, one thinks of measuring the viral load from the uh, infection via a nasal swab. But if the virus starts replicating inside the body or you have tissues dying, you can actually see signatures of the virus in the blood. And that not only associated with severe COVID-19, but it also associated with certain long COVID symptoms. Surprisingly, we found that another virus, Epstein-Barr virus, most commonly associated with mononucleosis, could also be reactivated in a handful of patients. Almost all of us have dormant Epstein-Barr virus in our blood. Most of us, it does not reactivate but in some patients it does, does not associate with disease severity, but it's, it resides in your B cells, which are the same cells that make antibodies and are perturbed strongly by the virus. So maybe there's a, 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 a relationship there. Those two viral loads associated with very specific symptoms that patients um, reporting long COVID suffered from, especially what we called respiratory viral-like symptoms, like flu-like, fatigue, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, and this was the most important thing, is when we looked for autoantibodies, um, some had been reported in the literature as being important for acute disease. Um, and then we looked for a handful of autoantibodies associated with systemic lupus erythematosus, or lupus, which is an autoimmune disease. It turns out those autoantibodies really accounted for a very, very large fraction of the patients complaining of long COVID. We're talking about long COVID on today's program with Dr. Jason Goldman, infectious disease specialist at the Swedish Center for Comprehensive Care, and Dr. Jim Heath, president of the Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle. The two are principal investigators in the PASC study published this spring in the journal Cell. Earlier, um, we asked listeners to send us questions that they have about long COVID. And I want to turn to a few of those now. Um, the first one, do we have a working understanding of the mechanism of action for late onset symptom presentation? What's the theory for why there's a delay? Jim Heath? There are some symptoms that seem to be delayed. And in fact, we recorded this in our patients. In, in particular, gastrointestinal symptoms seem to be delayed. And it could just be because of the time it takes for the virus or for viral pieces that can inflame your gut to travel and cause problems. Um, But for the autoantibodies, this is a a really hard question. And this has been, you know, for example, with lupus, you know, I'm not going to claim that we really understand what lupus is. With long covid What we're trying to do is map out in really tremendous detail the disease journeys that patients' immune systems take as they 
progress through acute disease into recovery. And we're finding that those disease journeys may look kind of similar at the stage of acute disease, but then they have different destinations, which would be different sets of long, longer symptoms. Um, and part of that is because the combination of, say, having autoantibodies and having the disease just puts you on a different trajectory that you yourself may not appreciate symptom-wise until you're removed from the disease. The question I have is, is there any parallel with the sort of post-polio syndrome, the chickenpox, shingles phenomenon? In other words, is this just something that viral illnesses do in terms of having an initial presentation and then going dormant for a while and then popping up later with new a new set of symptoms and new problems? That's a great question. There are definitely some commonalities of you know, post-acute sequelae after COVID with some of the other syndromes after viral infections. Maybe the best way to understand this is to try to understand, you know, how viruses work in terms of, you know, their life cycle in the body. There are certain viruses that tend to go to sleep and wake up again, like Epstein-Barr virus um, and other viruses in that group of herpes viruses in that family. That's their lifestyle is they go to sleep and they wake up. Certain infections are acute, like many respiratory infections, you know, don't tend to, in our basic understanding of them, really persist in the body for a long time. Um, so you mentioned polio. That, that one is probably a bit of an, an injury pattern, not necessarily a persistence of the virus. And we see that also in long covid uh, patients who spend you know many weeks in the intensive care unit on a ventilator, they have an injury to the lungs uh, that occurs that can be hard to recover from. There might also be another feature um, in long COVID where the the injury pattern to the lung, for instance, continues after the intensive care stay, or happens in people who maybe you know never even made it to the hospital. Uh, they weren't that sick in the initial infection. So this is where I think we still need to learn the most about what's going on. Uh, if there's, you know, persistence of virus in protected pockets in the body, or if there's an immune response that's ongoing to maybe the virus itself or little bits and pieces of the virus called antigens, um, that might... Um, explain why some of these things sort of pop up some time after the acute event, if there's an ongoing uh, disease process or an ongoing uh, si signal persistence. Um, our paper did allude to this idea that there might be um, persistence of virus in the body. Uh, we, we saw that, as Jim mentioned, the detect detection of SARS-CoV-2 in the blood was predictive of who had developed long covid and other studies have shown that there are um, persistent pockets of infection, especially in the brain or in the gut. So this might be a clue as to what's going on and, you know, does potentially point to, uh, you know, some treatments that might be beneficial, like antiviral treatments before the development of long COVID. And I, I think, Sean, you know, looking at the this bigger picture of chronic conditions that evolve after 
an infection. You could almost say that, you know, if someone has a sort of a major immune insult, the odds of developing chronic condition following that, whether it's chemo brain or whether it's post-acute Lyme syndrome, which is a very different type of acute conditions, but very well possibly leading to similar types of chronic conditions, possibly because of autoantibodies or because of reactivated viruses or all kinds of things that really has not been looked at because it's really hard to get 300 patients or 400 or 500 or 1,000 patients to give you blood over time um, through these types of, of, of conditions. You know, that's the kind of thing that we're beginning to take seriously right now. And, you know, Jason and I have this big part of this national recovery study, but it, it's the kind of thing that we we had wanted to do this kind of study on post-acute Lyme prior to the pandemic. Now I would do that study completely differently, much simpler study, much hmm. more, uh, uh, much cleaner. And I think I know what to look for. But I think a lot of these hmm. chronic conditions, you know, they may have similarly diverse etiologies with similar sets of what more or less kind of look like causal factors. And we can't prove that they're causal factors, but they, 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 they seem like they might, they have that flavor anyway. My guests are Dr. Jason Goldman and James Heath, co-principal investigators of the PASC Factor Research Project published in the journal Cell back in March. Coming up, we'll talk about the psychological impact of long COVID diagnosis, but let's go back to a few more listener questions. My favorite is um, really practical. Matthew in Chicago asks, when is my sense of smell coming back? It's been seven months now. I can try to take that one. Um, we do not know an exact time frame um, for the resolution of some of the uh, features of long COVID. Um, what I can say from interviewing many, many um, patients with long COVID uh, for the study we're discussing today and also in my clinic is that these um, things do tend to get better, um, especially the sense of smell. Um, it does seem to um, uh, really improve over time. Um, I have had uh, patients that had symptoms up to a year and then improved. And then I've also had patients that, that have told me that, you know, it's not really quite the same as before, but the intensity of it has diminished. There, there was a, a very good population level um, survey study out of the UK which showed that there's a bit of a stalling of improvement after around the um, three to six month mark. Um, so I think, you know, some patients who are suffering from long COVID might not get a complete, you know, re- return to normal health or what was their normal before COVID. Do demographics play a role in the type of long COVID that someone might have? Jim, you're nodding yeah, your head. Yeah, can because of... Um... You can imagine you've got different diets, you've got different levels of diabetes, of obesity, of cardiopulmonary issues, and then you've got different levels of care. You know, what was the quality of care patients were receiving early in the disease course, et cetera. It's hard to unravel all of that and to find out what's important and what's not, which is why the vast majority of studies on lung COVID right now are just coming out of epidemiological. It's not quantitative biological science like what we've been doing. It's more of just, let's just figure out where this is in the population, 
how factors like like ethnicity or demographic or geographical location, et cetera, play into it. We know they're important. I don't think we yet have a full grip on the magnitude of that importance, but it is important. Yeah, there's there's two other factors that are, you know, demographic factors that are very important to mention, and those are um, sex and age. So there is a um, predilection um, towards uh, females being more affected by long COVID. And that's been seen in a number of different studies, um, and it's not understood why that, why that exists. Um, age, there's also a very strong age association with long COVID. You know, older patients who are developing COVID have a much higher likelihood of still suffering from the effects or the after effects of COVID, you know, at a month or three months out from their acute infection. Although, you know, the spread of age really, you know, encompasses the entire, you know, human lifespan. Did the length of time that uh, a patient with the acute infection spent in intensive care, does that have uh, a role in the presentation of long COVID symptoms? Uh, And I'm thinking specifically about uh, the mental fog and the sort of ICU delirium, which is pretty common for long stays in an ICU without any um, viral infection? That's a little bit of a complicated question, so maybe I'll try to break it down a little bit. Definitely, severity of illness correlates with the development of PASC or long COVID. Um, Whether that's true exactly of the neurologic sequela, I am not entirely sure about that. You know, we, we tend to try to understand a disease process by trying to understand the mechanisms. So, you know, the, the fatigue and difficulty breathing that can develop after a long ICU stay where you're in bed for many weeks in a row or on a ventilator for many weeks in a row, that kind of um, muscle atrophy or, or, or lung tissue injury, those problems, you know, can persist in a certain way. The Cognitive effects of long COVID might be a different mechanism there. So there's been some nice work by a group out of UCSF that that look at you know neurological proteins and some of the you know as an injury signal. Um, so you know as we've discussed, there is likely a reservoir of persistent virus or persistent viral antigen that's causing um, some ongoing neurologic injury, uh, which is you know potentially. Uh, why some of the cognitive features of long COVID are so prominent, this brain fog, this confusion, this um, sort of inability to focus uh, that, that many, many you know, patients who are suffering long COVID are experiencing. I'm going to guess the answer to this is no, but has anyone put a price tag on long COVID yet? Well, it's big. And, and there's something you know estimated in the U.S. between, what, 10 and 30 million people are uh, suffering significant impact from COVID, but yeah, ten to thirty million people—that that dwarfs a lot of conditions. Especially when you're, you know, chronic fatigue, you can't go to work, or you're, you know, all sorts of other issues. No, it could it could have a huge economic impact on yeah for the next generation or or more. Right. Well, good luck to the two of you. This is incredible work you've done, doctors uh, Jason Goldman and Jim Heath are the co-principal investigators of the PASC Factor Research Project. They spoke with me from Seattle. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you, Sean. Take care. Thanks, Sean. Bye-bye.
We have a link to their paper, the PASC study, on our website, hearmenowpodcast.com. Also, you'll find a link to the broader NIH initiative, Recover, Researching COVID to Enhance Recovery. I really recommend that you take a look at the PASC study, though. If for no other reason than to appreciate the list of more than 75 authors that are credited, imagine the effort to coordinate research across institutions and labs within institutions. It's one of the hidden consequences of this pandemic, I think, the degree of cooperation that researchers are demonstrating as they work together across borders and across disciplines to combat a viral threat. It's really impressive, and it's something we'll be paying attention to. For some people living with long COVID, they've had to deal not only with the symptoms they're experiencing, but with the reactions of some of their doctors and their families and friends. Alicia Swift is one of the patients who talked with my colleague, Scott Acord. You heard her briefly at the top of the podcast, Here's a little bit more from their conversation. I think there may be more people out there than we think that have long COVID and either they're just not aware or they're embarrassed because there is, I think, a little bit of a stigma, Um, you know, for better or worse, uh, the pandemic has become very political. And so in a lot of ways, it's easier just not to talk about long COVID because you never know how someone's going to react to you. So... As a scientist, our, you know, our job relies on years of training. You know, for example, I have my PhD. Um, it relies on the ability to make analytical decisions. And I think for people whose jobs rely on their ability to mentally function, it can be really hard to step forward and say, you know what, I'm struggling because I think there could be fear of ramifications in the workplace. Um, And I'm very fortunate. I have a very supportive work environment. And I've decided that it's very important for us to come forward, even if there is that stigma now, and even if there are, you know, potential ramifications, because if we stay silent, then nothing will get better. You can hear Alicia talking with Scott, along with his conversation with TJ Roseberry and Suzanne Martin and Pam Bishop talking with her daughter, Lila. Those extended conversations are linked on our website. HearMeNowPodcast.org. Dr. Jim Jackson is a psychologist at Vanderbilt's Medical Center. He spent the better part of the pandemic looking at cognition and mental health in relation to COVID-19. He runs a number of support groups for long COVID patients and their families. And he joins me now from Nashville. Welcome. Good, Good of you to talk with us. It's really great to be with you today. This is an important topic, so I'm glad to dive in. Great. Well, let's do it. Um, we keep hearing from over and over and over again that people with long COVID have to deal with their symptoms, but they also have to deal with a reaction from people who just don't believe what they're describing is real. Um, what's the impact on someone who's sick and simultaneously being gaslighted. You referenced a few support groups that we lead. We'll perhaps talk about those later in the segment. But as we interact with our support group patients, they talk about this theme again and again and again, uh, which is 
they go to see a doctor. Uh, they talk to them very earnestly, um, often in great distress about the difficulties they're having, and they frequently feel minimized and dismissed. Uh, that certainly adds to any mental health challenges they're having. You know, that adds to dynamics of depression, uh, often in particular, often causes them to feel like they really can't continue to talk about this because they will be dismissed by other people as well. So often people, they really shrink, right? They stop reaching out, which is a source of support because they feel like they have been uh, a victim of gaslighting. Uh, they kind of curl up into a ball often, go into a shell, decide, I, I, I don't want to go through that again. Um, I don't want to go to another doctor. And the, the next one might be the right one. But, uh, you know, they really feel a little bit snake bit because of the experience they have. So I think the, the, um, the feeling of being minimized, it shuts them down. Uh, it worsens the mental health issues, uh, really increases feelings of hopelessness. It does all of those things. And I would imagine it adds to the fatigue, too. I mean, it, it just must be really exhausting to feel like you're not being believed when you are talking about how, the effects of this sort of post-viral syndrome. I think exhausting. And I think another word that I hear a lot is it's surprising. Now, by now, it may not be that surprising because people have, have heard a lot about it. But I think um, we often see patients who... Just to give an example, they're, they're dynamic and, and they were physically very healthy. Perhaps they were young, they were fit, and they go to see a doctor. They feel dismissed. Um, they, they haven't uh, had any complaints previously. Uh, they had a rich life that they were enjoying before. Why on earth would they be faking? You know, that's what these patients say. Why on earth would I be doing this? And um, often when they feel like they're being minimized and dismissed. It's almost like they throw their hands up saying, you know, what's going on? Am I living in bizarro world here? You know, why would I be questioned? Nobody's ever questioned me about things like this. So that's a right. concern. I, I know from, from our research that you also have a history of dealing with folks who are recovering from long stays in the ICU. Is what you're seeing with long COVID similar to or somehow distinct from the ICU delirium and the long time effects of being in uh, intensive care and being very, very sick. I mean, a lot of these people were, were sick for a long time. Uh, it's a great point. Um, I mean, we see ICU survivors in one of our support groups in particular, one group that's been going for about 10 years, who were in the ICU for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. We see COVID survivors who've had that experience as well, who've been on ECMO. Um, for two months or three months, uh, profoundly ill. So um, I think it highlights the fact that that often we talk about long COVID as if it's a thing, as if it's a single thing. And I think it's important to remember that although it might be easy to communicate by using the term long COVID, um, long COVID actually refers, I think, to four or five or 10 or 12, you know, who knows how many different phenotypes that all look a little bit different. And one mm -hmm. of those, I think, is the long COVID that people experience who have been critically ill. You know, they've had, they've had a set of insults that are um, distinct. They've been on a ventilator often uh, for a long period of time. They've had delirium. But um, I, I think the fact that they are very impaired should not lead us to conclude that, therefore, people are not 
you know, who have not been in the ICU. Because when we engage with people often who were not very ill in the community with COVID, they they had a, a mild case of COVID, if you will. They never were hospitalized. Um, they too often endorse post-traumatic stress disorder. They too often endorse really significant cognitive problems. So although things may look different, um, people are impaired with long COVID regardless, in, in my experience, of what their disease course was. They often are. And I think one of the things early in the pandemic that was a little surprising was just how ill people were, right. um, how cognitively impaired people were, right? Who had not much in the way of COVID exposure. I think that surprised many people. It certainly surprised me. Yeah. It's such recent memory. And if you almost have to force yourself to go back incrementally, like what was it like three months ago? What was it like six months ago? And I remember in those early days that it seemed like everyone's attention was on respiratory symptoms. And this was a respiratory illness. Right. And then suddenly you realize, no, it was it was going beyond just that insult to people's lungs, right. that there were other effects that, the, that this virus had. That may contribute to this sort of public I don't know, disbelief in some in some sense that it seems like every couple months there were more symptoms that got heaped onto the the pile of things that were caused by COVID. And now it seems like almost anything that someone suffers from can be said, oh, that's that's long COVID. And I, I realize that's a really ignorant thing to say, but I think it is the way a lot of people are thinking when they hear about this. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I think it's also true that a lot of people who are dismissive, uh, family members or neighbors or whatever, they're dismissive of some of our patients who had mild symptoms of COVID who now have long COVID. Part of what is happening there, I think, is it's really terrifying. You know, it's really terrifying to contemplate the possibility that you could not be very ill with COVID and you could develop very consequential symptoms long after the fact. I think that's a little frightening. So um, whether it's an unconscious process or not, I'm not sure. But I think some people are a little bit reluctant to go there. You know, they don't really want to consider the possibility that their brother or sister or mom or dad, son or daughter, whatever, could be this debilitated after being perhaps only very mildly, mildly ill. So I think they're not willing to look at that. Yeah. I've been thinking about other viral illnesses um, and how often there is a a late onset manifestation, um, sometimes 20, 30, 40 years after the initial infection. I'm thinking of things like how the virus that causes chickenpox often recurs as shingles um, or sometimes recurs as shingles. I'm thinking about the post-polio syndrome that people uh, had as adults who survived polio as children. It makes you realize that we don't really know much about this virus. It was novel two years ago, and it's still novel in some ways. What could manifest itself 30 or 40 years from now that we'll realize, oh my God, this was this is COVID? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but to your broad point, I, I would say this. Um, I would say that we don't necessarily know the trajectory of outcomes for people with long COVID. We don't know the trajectory of cognitive outcomes. We don't know the trajectory of PTSD or depression. So um, depending on your point of view, 
that could be a very sad thing that we don't know the trajectory, or it could be very hopeful. When I say very hopeful, what I mean is I think it could be the case that people with cognitive debility a year after developing COVID, I'm very open to the possibility that they could get better, right? You know, we don't know that they won't, right? right. So, um, so I think time will tell us a couple things. Time will tell us whether there are things that get better. Time will tell us whether there are things that get worse. I think it's a bit of an open question what the outcomes are going to be. Um, one thing I, I try hard to do in the support groups we lead, um, you know, without emphasizing rainbows and unicorns too much, you know, without doing that too much, I try hard to emphasize with our patients that there are reasons to be hopeful because we see cases all the time where people are getting better. Often it's at the one-year mark. Sometimes it's at the two-year mark. We had a patient in a support group just yesterday who shared that uh, she'd gone canoeing for the first time in a long time. It'd been a couple of years. The um, the arc of her recovery seems to be really trending. So I, I think it's a little bit of an open question, what is going to happen to so many of our patients? Um, that's not a question, uh, that's not an answer to a question that, that, that feels very satisfying. Just wait. Yeah, but I mean, it feels like be on the lookout for what could happen. And it's exactly. not just that near term, it's that long term. Exactly. Okay. So tell me about the the support groups in some detail, if you don't mind. I'm I'm really curious about the dynamic. I, I'm assuming you're meeting virtually. Are people building friendships? Or there's is there rapport right away? Yeah, I, I, I I'm glad to talk about it. Um, I, you know, I've done a lot. I've been fortunate to do a lot at Vanderbilt over the last uh, twenty plus years. But but if you were going to ask me what the thing is that, that I have both enjoyed the most and the thing I've done that I think has made the biggest impact. I think it's been these support groups. And um, I'm really glad that, that we decided to launch them. Um, when the pandemic started, we had one that predated the pandemic. And, and that was a kind of a generic all-comers ICU survivor support group. And I had seen that help a lot of people. We had seen that help a lot of people um, over the years. And it occurred to me that that long COVID uh, survivors were likely going to have the same challenges that ICU survivors did. I, I, I had a sense that's what would happen based on our previous work. And so um, it was kind of a, if you build it, they will come kind of a phenomenon. We thought, you know, if we offer some support groups, very likely people will join. And so we did, and they did come and they kept coming. Um, recently, we uh, had a waiting list of about 48 people for um, one of our support groups, that's with wow. four of them. I think we could have 44 of them. I, you know, I'm exaggerating, but I think the reason that they work well for patients and patients do come virtually really from all over the world to these support groups. I think the reason they work well for patients is um, many people with long COVID don't feel like they have a forum where they can be heard and understood you know, where they can be unconditionally affirmed. They don't necessarily have a safe space. And um, this support group has been that way for them. And um, they really have become, these folks, a lot like a family. You know, many, many people with long COVID, as you know, feel ostracized from their families. They feel minimized uh, by their families. They may still feel emotionally connected to their families, but physically distant, perhaps, from their families. So um, these connections have been really meaningful. And in many cases, 
they've been a literal lifeline. Um, I started the support groups with a bit of an agenda. That is, we were going to talk about cognitive rehabilitation, how to go about that in the support group. We were going to talk about specific psychological techniques that could be helpful. And um, while I think that would have been useful, we quickly realized that the biggest need was not for teaching people about cognitive rehab. It was just to create a space where people could care for and nurture each other. And that's really what we've done. Um, it's free of charge. It's, it's no cost. And um, people have really been devoted to it. Um, they don't miss. We don't miss. And uh, I think it's really making a difference in their lives. Um, we see people come and go. Um, we see people leave the support group because they um, improve and get better. And um, we see people stay. Whatever they need is, is what we want to affirm. They've been really meaningful. Have you been encouraging colleagues at other health centers to, to start these up? I have been. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit evangelistic about it, actually. I, I'm talking about it all the, all the time. Um, and, and I think some have. Um, I think um, sometimes the way this works is people think, I'm talking about colleagues in, in psychology or academia, I think sometimes people think, you know, I've got to get my ducks in a row before I can start a support group, right? I don't exactly know how to lead a support group. I need a little more training. Um, when we started ours, uh, it was really about recognizing, gosh, there is a need. You know, there's an overwhelming need. And um, if we wait until we figure out exactly how to do it, we'll probably never do it at all. So that's my invitation to my colleagues. Uh, you know, if you if you wait until you've honed all of your strategies and approaches um, in, you know, 2032, you're going to be starting your first support group. So don't do that. You know, find a mental health professional, find um, someone else who's motivated, jump in the deep end of the pool because people will come. You know, this podcast and the oral history project that is our backbone really takes as its mantra, the truth that of narrative medicine, that storytelling is important and that it's good for patients, but it's good for families. It's good for clinicians. Hearing people's stories is important and telling your story is important. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's so important. And, um, and I think many people feel that these support groups are virtually the only places they have to tell their story, you know, in a way that that story is going to be honored and affirmed. It is um, inherently, I think, therapeutic to tell those stories. And um, it's lovely to hear those stories as well. Uh, often very inspiring. You know, these aren't always happy stories, right? These are hard stories. And yet hard stories, difficult stories um, can be really powerful stories too. And I think that's what we reinforce. We're not looking for good news every week, right? You don't have to um, tell us a little better story about improvement every week. You know, come as you are, that's what we want. And, and I think that message has gotten across, which is why people have really jumped in the deep end with us. As an observer from the outside, thank you for doing it. It's, it's important work. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, you know, one thing that happened to me um, a bit before the pandemic, uh, in, in 2018 or so, um, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. It developed in my life quite out of the blue, actually. And, um, one thing I'd learned from, from a hard battle with OCD and it, and it was a hard battle. One thing I learned was that, um, there was healing in community. I was in a support group and it was incredibly helpful. 
And uh, another thing I learned was that um, you could be okay. You could find a way to be okay, even if all of your symptoms didn't go away. And um, those have been two themes, I think, of this support group. One, that um, this community, any community, any healthy community is healing. And two, um, this idea that we continue to invite people to consider, which is your long COVID symptoms might go away, or frankly, they might not go away. But let's not convince ourselves that the only way to be okay is for them to go away. You know, let's find a way to be okay even if they don't go away. And, and that's really the idea. Again, this isn't agenda driven, but if there's any concept we try to promote in the group, um, that's the idea that, that we're going to help you find a way to be okay, even if these symptoms don't completely go away. And that message really resonates, I think, with people. That's so important. I, it, it resonates with me on a lot of levels, but you know, one of them is this is this all or nothing th- way of thinking that a lot of us have. You know, yes. you're either completely well or you're completely not well. Exactly. And I've had a couple of clinicians help me understand that, you know, if you can make a 5% uh, improvement here in this part of your life and a 10% improvement over there, exactly. there's a 15% net gain that if you keep working at it that way, you inch the ball down the, the, the field. And it doesn't have to be, you know, all or nothing all at once. Yeah, it's it's so important. I, I, I think one area where this all or nothing sometimes comes up and we hit on it in the support group a lot is is this, that, that often people divide their lives. Many of our long COVID patients divide their lives into pre-COVID, post-COVID. You know, that's yeah. a bright red line. And um, there's a lot of value to be sure in identifying with COVID with with owning the situation you've got. I'm very much in favor of that. But I think sometimes what happens is when people draw that bright red line, what they can do is they can they can forget that even before COVID emerged, they probably had some challenges in their life. You know, it, it wasn't COVID um, that was nipping at their heels, but they probably had some challenges. And and if we can help them move away a little bit from everything was perfect before to everything is awful now, um, that, that's, a, that's a first step and that's an important step toward um, coming to terms with some of this. And we've had some success with that, I think. Reminds me, it's a Dorothy Parker who's, who used to answer the phone, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like every, every day brings its own new problems. And new- exactly, exactly. Dr. Jackson, thanks for, for taking the time to talk with me about this work. It's good luck with it. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here with you today. James Jackson is professor of medicine and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. We reached him in Nashville. He tells us he's open to hearing from clinicians who might be interested in starting support groups for long COVID patients at their own institutions. You'll find a link to Dr. Jackson on our website. And remember, there are four extended patient stories on our website, too. You'll find them at hearmenowpodcast.org. We're so grateful for you sharing your stories with us. Thanks, too, to Drs. Jim Heath and Jason Goldman in Seattle. 
The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. The podcast and Hear Me Now Oral History Project are produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. We have help from medical librarians Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.